Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Ruel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. Pediatrician Mark Vonnegut has spent nearly 40 years treating children for coughs, fevers, ear infections, and sometimes more serious medical conditions. Over that time, he has seen the U.S. healthcare system change in ways he couldn't have imagined as a medical student. Some good, others not so much. But what hasn't changed over the span of his career is the commitment to his young patients whose stories fill the pages of his new book, The Heart of Caring. In today's episode, Dr. Vonnegut recounts some of the cases that have stuck with him over the years and what he has learned from them, as well as the challenges he has encountered in the practice of medicine. He doesn't pull any punches. He talks about the consequences of the privatization of healthcare, the skyrocketing costs of insurance and pharmaceuticals, and the barriers to, to adequate mental health services. But along with his diagnosis of the healthcare establishment, he offers pre- prescriptions for making the system better and more centered on what's good for patients. Over the course of today's conversation, Dr. Vonnegut, a three-time author, will take us along the journey of a career that ultimately is a love letter to his patients and his profession, with many heartbreaks, but also many great hopes. So now let's meet our guest, Dr. Mark Vonnegut. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, so I know that, uh, like you, you you were a young man in the turbulent 60s and so forth. And uh, so, um, you know, it, this was a time of great exploration, upheaval, changes, and you didn't go right into medicine. So to tell us a little bit about how you ended up uh, choosing the career in meth- medicine and then pediatrics. I think in the we honestly thought that the economy as we knew it and the world as we knew it wasn't really going to survive. Mm-hmm. Um and so we took to the woods, tried to set up a self-sufficient commune. Uh, it was very interesting. I don't regret any of it. Um, but then when all the things we thought were going to happen didn't, what we were is a bunch of guy, one, guys and gals, people in their mid-20s without jobs. Mm-hmm. And so we, I had to think of, well, what should I have done? What would I have done if it hadn't been for all that uh, turmoil? Um, and I thought, geez, I should have been a doctor, you know, mm. I like math and science. Uh, uh, so it's, it's, it seemed, and that I got incredibly lucky that I went back to UMass. I went to UMass Boston, did uh, chemistry, organic chemistry, all that. And I enjoyed being a student and I got lucky and got into medical school. Hmm. Wow. Wow. And then of course, in medical school, you have to make the second decision, which is, what do you want to do with that? I mean, a lot of people go into specialties mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, that's what I found interesting, especially about your book in pediatrics, because you, know, you hear a lot about, you know, highly specialized medicine, you know, that's what our country is great at, you know, um, doing extraordinary surgery and uh, extraordinary, um, and, uh, you know, specialization in various fields, but pediatric, not the pe- pediatrics is a specialty too but it's something that people don't normally write about and, and talk about. So how did you end up in pediatric? What, what made you what gravitate toward this field? 
I had actually thought I was going to be a family doctor. I like the idea of not knowing what's going to come in the door mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the variety of the unpredictableness. And then I figured out that in New England anyway, most people um, take their kids to pediatricians and the kids was what I liked best about, about medical care. One of the nice things about medical school is you get to try out things like you will be, uh, you know, a plastic surgeon for a month or you'll deliver babies for a month and, and you really get to hang out, be on call overnight, whatever. And you say, ah, you know, I could do this. So, you know, and I think in life in general, it'd be nice if you could try out, uh, you know, being in the trades and <laughs> whatever, and then figure out what you want to do. But for me, I definitely love doing pediatrics more than anything else. And I like pediatricians. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, and to me, it's, it's an incredibly important first contact for a lot of kids. You know, I mean, I, you know, I remember very, very well, you know, Dr. Pastor, he was our first pediatrician, you know, and I remember going, I, I know today where his office was. <laughs> I remember going in there. I remember his manner. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, I, I think for, for children, it's incredibly first, uh, important first contact with medicine in the world. Um, so it's, I think you play a critical role in that capacity. And it is, <laughs> and it's something that I'm worried is going to be you know, lost in that now you hear about uh, urgent care centers and CVS or whatever are going to try to take over primary care. Or, and I just think a lot is lost. And in, in, uh, if you don't have a continuous or um, a, you know, a relationship you can really count on, like having been in the same community for 40 years um people know me people trust me i don't have to do a lot of x-rays or blood tests to prove i'm a doctor right um, and uh, and and it's it's great for me and it's great for the patients and i fear that the next generation of patients and doctors isn't going to be able to have that kind of continuity and fun it's right. more, it's it's fun to practice the way i do yeah yeah now what what's fun about it what do you what do you like about it You know, some of the stories I tell, uh, Mm -hmm. and there's some from every day, Uh, like today, I had this very wonderful, bright, um, hyperactive (laughs) 10-year-old girl looking in, and she said, uh, I like your sneakers. And I said, that's great. She said, "Uh, they're red, and your blue shirt doesn't go really well with the sneakers. So I said, said, well, thank you. I need all the help I can get fashion-wise. But I don't think internists have a conversation like that. Um, Or, you know, telling somebody, well, you have to pee in a cup. I have to do a test. And the kid looks and says, what's wrong with your bathroom? Um, <laughs> and, you know, kids are just, they are so, you know, in the moment. And, and uh, I, I don't think it's possible to uh, be taking care of people who you taking care of before you're going to see them again and to be depressed or if you're depressed there's something wrong but mm-hmm. but the practice of pediatrics i think does keep you young and lively right 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 and i, I think you know there there are different um you know stages of, of medicine too that one experience so first it's it's pediatrics and you know you're dealing with um children and their parents right i mean you're trying to 
you know, which is, and, you know, it's important, you know, on the flip side as people get older, you know, and their adult children bring in their parents, you know, it's always a tricky, a little bit tricky to realize, well, who's the patient? No, no, it's right. <laughs> you know, keeping a focus on the patient. But um, so how do you develop um, trust with both the parents and the, and the kids? You respect boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you are sincere. I'm trying to think, think of the things that I think interfere with that. I think mm-hmm. if somebody waits for 20 minutes to, to be put in a room to wait another 10 minutes and somebody comes in with a clipboard or, you know, or a laptop and is clicking away at it and not looking you in the eye and the visit only lasts 10. I mean, that's what you don't do to establish trust. Um, There are small things I do. Uh, I don't wear a wristwatch. Because I think there's a tendency, and I've been with doctors who every once in a while sneak a look or they'll say, oh, you realize this is only supposed to be a brief office visit. Um, So I think it's important for people to have the sense that they have all the time they want or need. Um, And it's, I think it's, you get the right diagnosis more often if you don't interrupt the patient. Somebody did a study where um, they said in the average uh, emergency room encounter, the doctor interrupts the patients within 10 seconds of the patient starting to tell why he is there. Um, So I think there is, um, there are tech, I understand, and I do uh, let my younger clinicians take in their iPads and their but I, it's important for me not to have a computer in the room. Um, it's important for me to make observations about like, you look really good or, you know, you look, you, you look sort of anxious. What are you worried about? Or, but so you're looking at the person and having, you know, a conversation about, uh, you know, too bad about the Patriots or whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. And and then I think naturally the diagnosis comes out of that rather than any sort of scripted encounter, which is what yeah. we're supposed to be doing now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more about this later on, about just the practice of medicine. But I think, you know, you're right. And it's tricky because, um, uh, you know, uh, I've had certain experiences of, you know, waiting for a while and, um then you say, come on in, Mr. O'L, fine. And I come in, then I'm in another room and I'm sitting in there. And then precisely as you describe it, come in, uh, one of their assistants comes in with a clipboard and starts going exactly. through stuff. And, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously not a, not a small child, but still there's a little bit of like, okay, like, what, you know, when do I see a doctor? And, and, and I, I kind of get it. You know, there's certain efficiencies in medicine. You're trying to, you know, basically make the best use of the doctor's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd rather talk to the doctor. I would, you know, and, um, and I do know, un- understand too, that when you wait for a while, it, it does, you know, cause a problem, uh, some certain anxiety among the, you know, patient yet. I kind of get it sometimes. And I got this from talking to my older brother, you know, in his practice and that, you know, he said, listen, you know, I know it could be frustrating, but you have to understand, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know how long, you know, consultations are going to last. You know, I can't predict that sometimes stuff happens. I've got to attend to, you know, I'm learning stuff. And it's just like, I can't say, well, you've got 12 minutes, you know, 
So, you know, it's difficult for doctors to kind of, you know, have a predict the schedule so tightly that you can do it, you know, the way, uh, you know, an attorney or an accountant might. Yeah. I still think that the, um, the important thing is the patient and the important thing is the patient's time. And, um, and I think that used to be that way. I think 90% of what an office doctor did or a hospital did was to directly uh, ascertain and address the needs and the concerns of the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of being trusted as a doctor is you have to make the patient has to matter and their time has to matter. And if you're late, I think you apologize. (laughs) And, and, and um, so I think if, yes, sometimes their delays are unavoidable. I will sometimes tell a patient, I, you know, this is too complicated a problem, come back next Saturday or whatever. But I do think, um, letting the patient know that their time is precious is part of being a good doctor. Right, right. Um, so, h- how has the it, it changed over the years? You know, it, you know, from when you started the, the, the practice, specifically of pediatrics. You know, what what have the, been some of the changes you've seen? The, it used to be that patients uh, and families had their choices. And there were like in a small community, there'd be three or four family doctors or whatever, and people would choose who they went to. And doctors were well-behaved and nice because if they weren't, the doc- patients wouldn't come back. Um, and now patients have less and less choice Uh, people are told, well, I can't see you anymore because you're not on my panel Um, and, and stuff like that. And it used to be much more intimate because we were charging 10, 15 and $20 a visit. We were very stingy, kept our overhead low. I paid back my uh, student debts in less than a year. Um, There was, I mean, things were, you know, it did not, feel corporate. The problem now, I think, is the number of for-profit corporate entities that are involved in, uh, so the patient has to go through all this rigmarole to get to see a doctor in the first place. Right. I used to um, just, I went out to the waiting room, I brought you back, I weighed you and measured you and did your <laughs> blood pressure. And along the way, I got a sense, oh, it's limping a little, doesn't, whatever. Um, but you learn a lot. And by not having the receptionist and the insurance verifier and the, you know, medical assistant and all the vital. So if you I still sometimes, especially with mental health and behavioral health stuff, I'll go to the to the waiting room, take the patient back myself and say, let's deal with the co-payments and everything afterwards. Okay. So I sort of flip the visit upside down. Yeah, yeah. So just so I know, what, what, uh, what ages does pediatrics cover? At what point do you hand off to an, another you know, internist? You try... And it's a real problem finding internists who are um, interested in taking care of well young people. I don't think they (laughs) they see the point or they're not familiar enough 
um, and they're sort of uh, frightened by, um, you know, kids with serious problems, kids with autism or uh, Down syndrome or whatever. We're used to dealing with those serious issues. And I think there's a crisis in, in all of primary care where um, the internists feel under their, under a lot of pressure and for them to take on new patients and fill out all those forms, you know, so it's hard to find um, good care for young people moving on. Um, and there's only so much we can do about that. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk, I'm sure more in our last segment about, you know, the system in general, uh, as we get into your book, but I think it is certainly uh, an issue. And, and I think that, you know, you mentioned that you, you paid back your, your student loan in a year. Of course, that's, that's, that would be, by today's standards, a miracle, right? Um, for, for many students, for many students. And I think that's a problem. So people come out with this huge debt and, um, you know, they're, they, they see themselves forced into situations where they've got to make compromises and join big practices. And, uh, um, and you know, that's, um, I remember even on, again, the flip side, when um, I was, um, my family was looking for uh, a kind of boutique care for my mother, an elderly mother, um, you know, uh, so instead of, you know, a, a large practice, we had a doctor who was, uh, I guess, uh, I had a, they just, you know, had limited number of patients, but even they had hundreds of patients, you know, mm-hmm. and I was like, wow, how do you keep track of this? Um, so, um, well, look, we're going to take a quick break, doctor. Uh, when we come back, folks, uh, we'll be talking much more with uh, author and pediatrician Mark Vonnegut. So don't go anywhere. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. We live in a fully connected world and share digital information every day in our businesses, with our money, and even our health. I should know. My name is Tyler Cohen Wood, and I'm a top cybersecurity expert and former U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency senior intelligence officer. I know many technology secrets that keep our world safe, but I have a secret few people know. I suffer from a rare autoimmune disease that has no conventional cure. According to the National Institutes of Health, as many as 25 million Americans suffer from a rare undiagnosed condition. People with rare or hard to diagnose diseases often spend years being shuffled from doctor to doctor and specialist to specialist, feeling as if they're in an endless loop of siloed care that rarely gives answers to unexplained conditions. In 2018, I became one of these people. At the time, I had no idea that I would use my cybersecurity background to save my own life or that I was about to go through a tumultuous medical journey that would change the course of my life and in turn, give me the opportunity to bring together my cybersecurity knowledge and my patient experience to change the business of digital health. On My Connected Life, Digital Health Disrupted, you'll hear how to better understand and improve your patient experience and keep your connected life safe. 
We'll talk about the latest digital trends that can keep the security of the entire healthcare ecosystem and our data secure and within our control. The business of digital health is our business and it's time we learn to own it. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with pediatrician and author Mark Vonnegut. Before we continue, I just want to let you know that uh, Mark is uh, the author of uh, the current book, The Heart of Caring. And during this segment, we're going to continue talking with him about um, uh, the practice of medicine in general and pediatrics in particular. But we'll talk more specifically about the book. Um, so, Mark, why don't you decide to write a book, first of all, on, on this topic? It, um, I think my wife got tired of me talking about, huh, okay. about it. And, and uh, so uh, she thought it was a good idea. And eventually I said, yeah, that is a good idea because there are all these wonderful stories. And also there is uh, sort of the arc story of how medical care has changed um, and how the two have been intertwined intertwined and how I've really, you know, love being a pediatrician. Um, and there's a certain um, sadness for me and how things have changed and, and how as a, and I, I think the, there are many, many people in medical school who would love to be primary care pediatricians and stuff, but the finances and the student debt and everything else that wasn't really a problem for me is a problem for doctors today. Right. Right. And uh, just for the uh, information of our listeners, you do come a, come from a important pedigree. Your dad, of course, is uh, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, one of my favorite authors. Um, And uh, from what I understand, you, you were named after Mark Twain. Is that right? Yes, and I'm glad he dropped the twain out of the book. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But but I'm glad you decided to write on this topic. I think it's really important. And um, so I just want to talk a bit more about um, you know some of this, the stories in in the book. You you told one story of, of a child, but what what are some of the other cases, if you don't mind, just um, thinking about uh, that struck with you in terms of you know um, you know things that you learned from them. Um, and uh, things that you didn't expect in the process. The nice thing about pediatrics is you never know what to expect. If you're a gastroenterologist, you know, you're going to have so much, you know, peptic ulcer disease, this, that, and it's, but I never know what's going to walk through the door. Um, 
you, you know, I had, um, there was, you know, a family, uh, man, a woman came to see me and said, we've been told we should have an abortion because we have a child who has osteogenesis imperfecta, which is just wow. this dreadful brickable one. And, and, and they said, and we're not going to do that. So w- what should we do? And, and I, w- what do you think? And I said, I think you're incredibly brave people. I'll help you to the best of my ability. But being included in a story like that, or uh, there was uh, one where one of my patients is getting more and more anemic, and it turned out he had a fatal bone disease unless he had a good match for bone marrow. Mm. So the family had a fifth child and it wasn't. So to me, this is just a great joy. Whereas the hematologist was saying, do you think it's ethical to have a baby just to be a bone marrow donor? And I said, that's, that's not the point. And, and, but I know that that kid grew up to be the strongest, handsomest, smartest uh, brother of them all. But to be part of a story like that is a great, great joy. Um, And, and, you know, there, there are tons of them. Sometimes I just want to, you know, sit back and let my patients talk because they're so wonderful. Right, right, right. Do you get a sense of, um, you know, uh, changes over the generations or basically it's just that, you know, the same sort of, you don't know what to expect, but um, you know, that kids today are kids 40 years ago. I think it's much harder to be a child. I think there's so much more pressure on kids. Uh I grew up really in a pretty innocent world uh, in retrospect of the fifties where, uh, you know, I thought, I thought life was really pretty easy. I wasn't, um, uh, you know, I felt like I had an infinite number of choices. You know, if I wanted to be a lawyer, I could have been a lawyer. If I wanted to do this, but I felt it was that way for everybody in my generation. I didn't have a sense of the inequalities and, and, um, you know, racism and all the things that kids now watch on TV from very, very young. So I think kids feel they're under uh, academic pressure, social pressure, uh, and you have, um, you know, preteen kids who have full-blown depression and anxiety. I don't think that happened very often when I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I would tend to agree with you. I don't, you know, obviously I'm not a, you know, a researcher, uh, but it does seem that, you know, at least the preliminary research we have shows that there, there are certainly many more feelings of stress and anxiety and, um, yeah, pressure. I mean, some people, you know, a lot of people blame social media and, you know, I guess one could consider that a component of it. But it, it, it does feel that there, well, the world is, is heavier to young yeah. people these days um, and that, um you know, between, you know, I mean, never mind all the, the daily stresses. I mean, you have climate change in the background. They're worried about, you know, is there, you know, what's the world going to be in 30 years? They keep getting stories about, well, we have, we have 30 years to deal with, you know, climate change. Otherwise, we've run out of time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, you, you and I didn't, we didn't have, you know, devices, you know, cell phones when we were growing up. Um, and as far as I can figure, the most uh, useful thing about them for, for me is that I can contact people when I'm late for appointments or I know where my kids are. And so that's helpful, mm-hmm. you know, and like, 
I can Google things when I can't think of, you know, somebody's name. <laughs> so, but I think otherwise the, the, um, you know, the, the attachment and the dependence on it is, is mm-hmm. I think, you know, stressful, right? I mean, this. And I think as parents are more worried about what would happen, what their kids uh, choices and opportunities would be. Um, I don't, I honestly don't think my parents gave it a second thought. So he'll do something. (laughs) Right. And, um, and, and now I think there is much more for kids to worry about. I have, um, who I call my refresher course is he's now 19 and I, you know, I had him in my mid fifties and I had, I drove him to school every day, which is wonderful because you're just sitting in parallel and you have these wonderful conversations. Uh, but something disturbing had happened uh, politically. And I just said, I never thought I would live to see da, 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 da. This is so discouraging. Right. And he, he, what he just said, just looking straight ahead, he said, dad, welcome to my world. That mm. sense of, you know, of things aren't going to be easy. And that was just, that's what he and his friends were growing up with. Yeah. 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 I mean, when I went to college, it was like, you know, I, I was a liberal arts major and, and uh, it was like, well, this is just kind of free time to think, you know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't yeah. wasted. Um, yeah. Certainly I, I had time to explore things, but um, it, it, I do get the sense that this generation of, of kids and, um, you know, right through college, you know, um, you know, feel that they, they don't have that time. They've got to make decisions faster. Um, right. I, I love my son has gone from, he was going to be a lawyer. So uh, what I do wrong? I'm going to have two uh. lawyers in my family. And, and now he wants to be a philosophy uh, professor. I couldn't be happy. <laughs> good, good. I'm sure you'll be underpaid and everything, but yeah, you know, I think, finding kids work through the anxiety about what is their life going to be like and really to find something they truly love. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And I think also um, getting through the expectation of what's happening now is going to be happening five years from now. Right. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I, I look at um, many people in their professions and, you know, certainly in something like, um, well, you didn't go to college to do that. You know, you, you know, there are many professions mm-hmm. that are somewhat intentional like yours, but also accidental. You had a little time to think about it and then you said, well, hmm, yeah, medicine is, would be good. Yeah. Um, so I think that it, it's, it's difficult for, for kids these days to feel that they have the time to make decisions. And also that it's like, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, of course, when you say that, the minute you say that they're like, they're worried. But right. but but it, it is true that you do get some perspective on that things will change and that the natural state of things is being able to adapt to changes, you know. So um, um, so you know, speaking of changes, so let's let's shift a little bit now from from pedi- uh, pediatrics to the healthcare system more broadly and some of the things that you've seen there. Um, and uh, you know, there yes, it's it's changed dramatically. You started to talk a little bit about it. But what would you say were some of the main things you've seen that are problematic in terms of the way it's evolved? I think um, disrespect for patients and their time and their values and inaccessible 
medical care. Most of our community and rural hospitals, we've lost 40% of them. We've lost like 80% of the community doctors that used to be centered around community hospitals. Um, so we can do incredible things I could have only dreamt about in medical school, um, uh, solid organ transplants and stuff. But the access of the average person um, to uh, routine medical care is, um, is much less than it used to be. Um, mm -hmm. And I do think <laughs> when I was an intern or a resident, people would walk into Mass General. All you had to do was have a child and a complaint. There were no co-payments. There was no, we'd check your insurance later. Um, and I thought it was outrageous that it cost $100, um, you know, for an emergency room visit back then. Um, and I think the amount of money involved has changed things greatly. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it used to be a gentlemanly <laughs> you know, we didn't, we, you know, we didn't have to worry about, um, you know, making a ton of money. Um, and as I say, you know, people coming out today with a quarter to a half million dollars of debt and to have that what's on your mind rather than what am I going to do to be of service to patients? Right. So, right. Uh, yeah. Now there've been a couple, yeah, a couple of things, some of which, some of them I think have been, um, um, uh, elevated by the, the pandemic. But one of the things that, that's come on is telemedicine, right? What's, what are your thoughts about telemedicine? <laughs> I, I, I get grumpy about that too. Because, okay. <laughs> I, be, because I used to, and I still do, I call my patients back or I call them to see they're, how they're doing all the time. I, I feel, why should I fill out a piece of paper that says, was there a video component? Was the patient in New Hampshire or Maine? Because we'll pay X number of dollars if they were in New Hampshire, but in, in, in and it goes on and on and on. So fine. I, the fact that they'll pay me something for it, I'm supposed to be grateful for, but I don't like being paid for things I did routinely, which was talk to people on the phone all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for me that my, my feeling was that the, the, it was useful in one sense, which is that once I knew the doctor, um, mm -hmm. you know, once he or she, and I had had some consultations. So then it was, you know, well, especially during the pandemic. Okay. So, uh, but also for people, I suppose in, in, you know, in rural areas, again, if not, not for, you know, more serious examinations, but if you, if you know what the issue is and and then you just we just want to talk to the patient and you really can you know look at the patient and you could you, like for example i had um you know a swollen finger i went to a rheumatologist you know last year and after we had an examination with the test and then i said she said okay show me the finger so we we could you know it it was you know a way that we could continue contact without having me drive there so I think there's usefulness to it, but I, but I, I agree with you that, that then you layer on this bureaucracy of like, well, what, what kind of call was it? Was it this? Was it that? It would be a reimbursement for this? You know, that's, gets crazy. It is crazy. And it used to be, um, you know, we answered the phone, we returned calls um, and, and that was just part of the deal. And I agree for me to, a lot of the, 
care we are mandated to give like okay this kid has asthma he has to come in for an asthma check i call them they're not taking any asthma it's they're not having any symptoms but i'm supposed to bring them in but now i don't have to i can do it on the phone so i can do useless care (laughs) the patient and i are no longer in charge they say okay you need a refill of medicine you have to go see the doctor to get this refill that's just all from my point of view wasted time and money right you know. right there's yeah. just oh any side effects no grades are okay how's your mom okay <laughs> yeah 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 you don't need to fill out forms i mean I, and certainly you know the continuity of information is important so you know that's one thing where i'm still you know perplexed that i you know that that we do have the technology to make that more streamlined, right? I mean, to go to doctor, doctor, and to fill the same information all the time, you know, if, if that sort of stuff can be transferred from doctor to doctor, so that we really can talk to the doctor about what's, what's, what's the problem? What are we trying to figure out instead of mm-hmm. repeating the same things over and over again? Um, but um, yeah, so that's where I think we've, we've, I'm not sure what the reason is we have, I, I, I guess it may be HIPAA. I'm not sure. You know, the, the confidentiality of information as it passes from hand to hand, but I, I, I have my suspicions. It's not. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's. Sometimes I just think we had this old fashioned thing, which really was great for patient safety and referrals. It's called a telephone. I would pick up the telephone, call the emergency room, tell them what was coming and to call me back or whatever. And now I, it's all clickety clackety and the emails go out into the ether. And, right. uh, and I, so there used to be, very immediate contact between doctors and referrals and stuff. Yeah. It doesn't happen yeah. anymore. Yeah. All right. We're going to take another quick break, Mark, uh, but don't go away, folks. We'll be talking much more in our last segment with Dr. Mark Vonnegut, a pediatrician and author. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks, uh, for our last segment with Dr. Mark Vonnegut, uh, pediatrician and author. Uh, now, there's a lot more we can t- talk about in terms of the healthcare system, in terms of what the issues are. But one of the big issues that I think uh, I wanted to make sure we had a little bit of time to talk about is just, the, you know, psychiatric care and the mental health issues, which, you know, you've had some firsthand experience dealing with. But, and, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit, uh, you know, that I, I do quite a bit of work, volunteer work for the Alzheimer's Association. And I know that one of the issues there is, is just the stigmatization of the disease and just sort of the great silence about it. And I think that's similar with mental health issues. And certainly it's become a little bit more elevated in, in terms of public issues. Again, partly because of the pandemic, people have been talking about it and people worried about the mental health of children and isolation of seniors and so forth. But it, it was there before the pandemic, as you well know. So what, what are your thoughts, doctor, about, you know, what, how we should, um, you know, I don't want to say fix, but basically improve mental health care? I, I, I think there are things that need to be fixed. Okay. <laughs> there are resources and facilities and personnel, which we don't have, which we should have. Um, they... You know, we didn't used to have homelessness in the late 60s. Uh, we closed down all the state hospitals, which were admittedly, uh, and nobody thought the care there was great, but to just take these chronically ill people and let them go and say there'll be such this thing called community mental health, and community mental health was never adequately funded. So you created a whole lot of untreated mental illness and homelessness. Um, and I think it's bad for everybody's health, but I mean, what we need now is we need financial support for therapists, for psychiatric care, uh, for psychiatric beds. I mean, I had a patient who, um, he's this, he has a 10 year old, huge autistic kid with a single mother and she couldn't manage him. Um, because you go into rages. And so if she goes to an emergency room, um, the, the emergency room is clogged up anyway. If he's lucky, they see a psychiatrist once. They spend looking for days looking for uh, a psychiatric bed. They over-medicate him and send him back to me to manage him. This is just unacceptable. There should be 
again, the patient's time matters. You shouldn't have to spend, you know, hours, let alone days in an emergency room to get in different care. So I think the public has gotten much better, much more aware, much more supportive, but I do think we need, um, you know, we need uh, more nurses, more psychiatric, uh, social workers. We need, we need resources that aren't, just aren't there. Right. Yeah, and I think that, you know, every time there's an opportunity to increase the resources, doesn't happen. I mean, I think those are the cuts that get made, I think, in budgets. Um, um, you know, but I, I think, I think, I think again, incrementally, it's getting better in terms of rec recognizing it. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, you know, someone like you, you, you really, you come from that experience. I mean, you have a couple of books that you dealt with some of your issues and the Eden Express, and then you have another book, um, just like someone with a ment without mental illness, only more so. So, I think it, it takes people in the profession like you to recognize this and then basically advocate for, you know, increased resources. Um, I think a small thing I can do and I do is to, you know, I'm, I am, I'm completely open about it. You know, when I'm talking to people or even my patients, they don't really care. And people have a lot of natural empathy and sympathy, which my profession as a whole doesn't necessarily have. Right. Um, but to just say, yeah, okay, I have, I have mental illness. So, you know, what else, what else can we talk about? Yeah. 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 And, and I think, you know, from my perspective too, that I, you know, in talking with people of mental health problems, uh, you know, just to listen to them and realize that, um, okay, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, your life and mine are, are you know, the same uh, or even similar, but there are things that, you know, that I can recognize like, wait a minute, there, you know, there is a spectrum and, yep. and you're not so different from me. Yep. And there are issues that are connected between, you know, you know your physiological yep. state and your mental state. And that yep. I think there are, there are things we can do. We, we can improve our nutrition. We can improve our exercise or ways that we can deal with this. And um, I think going back to what you said earlier on, it does come down sometimes to money. It's like when yeah. people figure out a way to make more money at it, <laughs> then they'll do it. You know? uh, I also think there's a sense that we, that um, our health is connected, our mental and physical health, you know, my being healthy helps your health. Your being right. healthy helps my health. Right. Uh, you know, you get a healthier workforce. You get a healthier neighborhood. You get healthier. You know, if we're in good health, we can take care of our aging parents or whatever. So it's not just individual. And it's, I think especially with mental health, you realize uh, that a mentally ill person not getting good treatment can drag down a whole family or a whole neighborhood. Right. But on the other hand, if their recovery itself can also be, you know, it, it builds on itself. You can get a right. good cycle or what it's not a vicious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think it's, it's sort of what I think of uh, as one of the um, uh, unexpected um, benefits of the, uh, the green movement, if you will, the, you know, the environmental movement, which is just sort of this theme of um, relationships, right? Mm -hmm. That the environment, we're, you know, there are relationships that affect us 
you know, and infect everything in it. So as mm-hmm. opposed to, to an ecological approach, as opposed to a technological approach of just, you know, spec- specific problems to individuals and you're just trying to target that. But mm-hmm. so I think that that's been kind of an interesting benefit of, of thinking that, that, mm-hmm. that there is an impact, you know, that that's greater than just the individual patient. Connection and relationships are everything. And that goes, you know, from, you know, cancer to, um, you know, psychotic breaks or whatever. Humans who don't connect or can't make relationships don't get well. And people who do get well can, you know, again, have have positive relationships. We're social animals. Right, right, right. Um, so in the, in the time we have left, I just wanted to, uh, cycle back to some of the things that, you know, if, so if you were, um, talking to medical students today, what would you, what would you advise them? What would you say to them? I'd say, I'd say I've done my best now. It's your <laughs> <laughs> and I do, I, I have them come to my office and stuff like that. And I do say, you know, and again, it's, I say, you know, this clearly has to be fixed. You went into medical school to be of service. You didn't come here to make money. So you have to figure out how can you be of service to patients? I tell them to imitate the nurses. Nurses are going on strike, not for more money. They're going on strike so that they can take better care and have fewer patients. So instead of running around trying to take care of 10 people, they want to take care of five. And that's clearly about the quality of medical care. Um, and doctors should be not try to be on the side of the insurers and, oh, please, mother, may I give me a little bit more money? They should be on the side of with the nurses and the patients saying, we have to have higher quality medical care and we know how to get it. Right, right. Now, are, are doctors in a position to, you know, to, to basically make that um uh, request or demand from institutions like hospitals? As a group, yes. Okay. <laughs> the problem is we keep thinking of ourselves as single knights on white horses. Right. And, 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 and I do think it's not in a doctor's nature to think of themselves as a worker who has certain rights or could organize or whatever. Right. But I think some form of the profession saying, this is hurting patients. We took an oath that we wouldn't do that. And so it has to stop, whether it's prior authorizations or co-payments or just shutting down all these hospitals. At a certain point, I think it is up to doctors to say, this hurts patients. And right, right. We now, took an oath. Yeah. Now, what, one thing that I, I read about that um, in preparing for our show that I was not aware of thinking about it was um i guess it's the the, i'm just uh, the article was talking about you know the shortage of doctors you know especially as you've noted in rural areas but that that one piece of the problem was um the um you know the centers for medicare and medicaid services basically uh, which provides payments to hospitals basically um you know keeping a lid on the funding available to do that and that so it, it limited the capacity of hospitals to hire right. uh, residents. Right. And I think the payer, you know, who pays should be of secondary concern. The concern should be, I have somebody with chest pain here. I should take care of them. 
Um, but the whole idea that insurers got into is we should have less but medical, better medical care. People don't talk about having less but better science or less, mm. you know, that there is a sense if you want something to be better, you actually have to devote resources to it. Right. And I think medical care in general, people say there's waste. So if we take it away, there'll be less waste. It's just it doesn't doesn't work that way. If you want good medical care, you have to invest in it. Right. 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 Um, so in the last couple minutes, so what would you, what would you say to a medical student going in today? What would you say? What, what advice would you give them? But besides I've done my bit. <laughs> I, you didn't come this far to have a lousy, you know, you, right. Don't, don't let the, the suboptimal situation you're coming into rule your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, keep your sense of humor. Don't let this burn you out. Um, you know, you, you're here to do good. You can do some good. And, and like I said, I look back on, you know, I had a rock and roll band all the way through hospital. I still play rock and roll. And I think, uh, I worry about all the financial pressures that doctors are going to get gloomy and doctors who are gloomy don't take good care of people. Right. Right. So I try to keep the mood up. The mood is everything. I think that's, great advice. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I would just say, you know, like explore different opportunities, yeah. you know, that's not, you know, that bef- before you get, you know, into one area, there are lots of opportunities. You can go in different areas and, and explore different parts of the country and, and explore mm-hmm. different experiences in medical care that I think can inform you, you know, over the course of your life. One thing I almost always tell them is go to Honduras or Haiti or some uh, go on a medical mission to, uh, you know, uh, and see how the rest of the world looks and how different patients are when they're not struggling with insurance and everything else. They have to walk to get to you, but there's something very eye-opening and refreshing about taking care of people uh, in desperately poor places like Haiti. Right. Wow. Okay. Well, doctor, well, I really appreciate your time there. I'm sure there's much more to talk about, but uh, we'll have to leave it there for today. I wanted to thank you for a terrific, informative uh, conversation. Um, Now, Mark, if people have questions or comments, they want to contact you or they want to get your book, I guess they can get your book on Amazon, right? I mean, or, or yes, <laughs> or, or any of the, the less evil uh, vendors too. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So anyway, once again, folks, tell your friends if they missed my conversation with Mark Vonnegut, Dr. Mark Vonnegut today, you can listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Just search for my show 45 forward. Uh, you can also listen to it on Apple and Google podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or go to my website, roboresources.com. Just click on the 45 forward tab. Uh, so uh, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking to Bill Soltz, the director of Stress Solutions New York. We'll talk about his distinctive approaches to dealing with stress, anxiety, and trauma at a time when we're dealing with plenty of all those things. So until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.